Welcome to this highlights show. We've had some fantastic guests on the first 20 shows of the Leeds Business Podcast, and we've covered a wide range of topics and heard some amazing stories. My guests have shared everything from suicide attempts to 20 million pound turnover businesses crashing, surprise exits, prison sentences, and everything in between. There have been some fascinating tales and some brilliant learnings. For this episode, I've chosen my personal highlights from each of the first episodes, numbers 1 to 10. Hopefully, there'll be a few of your favourites in there, and if you missed any of them, feel free to dig back into the archives and give them a listen. So, let's go. In the first ever episode of the Leeds Business Podcast, we spoke to Linda Plant, Queen of Mean from The Apprentice, and she gave us that wonderful quote, if you give me a business plan that's wreckable, I'll wreck it. So this is Linda talking about what makes a good business plan, specifically on The Apprentice. Well, first of all, your idea. Is your idea good, right? That's that's the first plan. Is it feasible? Is it good? Is it different? Then, you know, let me look at your financials. First of all, let's look at the pluses, the minuses. Let's look at the whole plan. And then are you bringing financials? Are they realistic? I would say the worst thing about a lot of these plans is they're just not realistic. The idea might be good, but then they go off on, you know, tangents of not realistic because they think if they say they're going to make a million, it'll impress Alan. It won't. So I think a good business plan is good structure, a good story about your business, research, you know. And I always say, and I say this in interviews, if you if you if you don't know something, it doesn't matter. You know, you can you can write down you need help or you can say you need help. But uh, if you've got a good idea and you've got a well laid out business plan, you're showing the strengths and weaknesses, the competition, all the things that are important. And you're really showing that you understand what you're talking about, because you've got to do research. If you want to start a new business. You've got to do research. Who's your competition? Are they good? Are they bad? What's the prices like? You know, you've got to come to you. You've got to know about your business. You might not know everything, but you've got to have a good amount of knowledge about your business. And so it's got to be well laid out, well structured. It's got to have financials in. It's got to have a growth plan. It's got to show, is it scalable? Because especially if you're looking for an investment, is this scalable? Is it a scalable business? Some business is not scalable, you know. And, and and the growth has got to be structured and sensible, not 20 grand today and 1 million next year. And how are you going to do it? Uh, I don't know, you know, or, you know, you're not going to do it because you're not going to do that and you're not going to do that. And that's time and time again. You know, you're a mobile disco. You're not going to be an international party planner next year. Look, ambition is great. You've got to have ambitious and you've got to have dreams and aspirations, but it's got to be tempered with a growth plan. And is your business scalable to start with? In episode two, we met Ajaz Ahmed, the man who launched FreeServe. He told us all about the ugly baby syndrome and gave us some great business advice from Simon Cowell, of all people. If you imagine that um, uh, a couple have just had a baby and they're in love with that baby aren't they because it's their baby and you go along and look at the baby and you think oh shit that's ugly isn't it um and it's the same in business people have got ideas and they think these are fantastic ideas but the majority of ideas that i get to look at are actually pretty shit unfortunately and the best example of this is simon cowell um on the x factor or britain's got talent 
and uh, you get people there who think they can sing and in the back they've got their family or their friends with a t-shirt on you know uh praying for it and they they try and sing and then simon cowell says no i'm sorry but you can't sing and the reason they think they can sing is they've never actually met anybody who hasn't got vested interest so their family and friends have got vested interest so they tell them well you can sing uh but um they need to sing in front of someone who hasn't got a vested interest. And it's the same in business. They only talk to people that have got a vested interest and they think they've got a great idea. What they need to do is meet someone who hasn't got a vested interest who will tell them the truth. It's not very good. So I've met so many people that have got pretty poor ideas and they've never spoken to someone who's going to tell them the truth. It's not going to work. There's another side to that as well, because, you know, I work as a, as a business sounding board, a sort of mentor coach. And, and yes, that the, the key that business owners need to have is somebody who's not involved. It's the vested interest. You know, sometimes it's, it's conscious bias, sometimes it's unconscious bias. But I think one of the things that, that business advisors like myself and yourself can do is not only say your ugly's baby, your, your baby's ugly. So I said that wrong way around. <laughs> your baby's ugly. But actually to then say, this is how potentially you can change it. This is how you can improve it. This yeah, yeah. is what needs working on. Yeah. And I think many, many business owners are so invested and so yeah. maybe proud, maybe arrogant, yeah. maybe too much self-belief that they won't listen. And I think that's one of the important yeah. things business owners do need is somebody from the outside yeah. saying, well, if you, you know, yeah. if you change it slightly, it might work at yeah. this direction or this market or. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Uh, when you meet someone who's got an ugly baby and you try and tell them it's not going to work, uh, then they'll they'll get upset and they carry on finding someone who will tell them it's great. So it's a beautiful baby that, and I'll charge you £2,000 and uh, we'll be able to do this. So they'll give them the money because uh, they're not upsetting them. Yeah. And there's an awful lot of that, I'm afraid. Um, and uh, so to making sure that you actually talk to someone who knows what they're talking about, who will tell you the truth is the thing. Uh, but people don't like it when you tell them the truth. Yeah. That's a big problem, very big problem. Uh, you meet a lot of people who, you know, say, oh, yeah, I met you a few years ago. Yeah, well, how is your business going? Well, it didn't work. Yeah. Well, if you'd listened, then you wouldn't have wasted that time. <laughs> and you say, I told you so. Yeah, I told you so. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, by the way, I, I, you know, you know, one of the most important things is I, I, I met lots of people that said free serve, do you know, I had that idea as well. Yeah, but you didn't do anything about it, did you? Um, so if you've got a, a Eureka moment, if you've had a Eureka moment, you've got to do something about it. In the third episode of Leeds Business Podcast, we met Richard Flint, ex-CEO of Skybet. Richard explained how what seemingly was a mistake by the business ended up being a really good shortcut. What would you say was the, the, the biggest one that went wrong and what did you learn from it? The, yeah, I think that it's, it's never quite sort of black and white and sort of right and wrong, but we, we initially focused on interactive TV. Uh, like, I don't know if, you or many of your many of the listeners um you know remember this but sky had a sort of thing where you could uh you could press the red button to um to buy a holiday you know and the, and the internet was in its relatively early days there so right back in the early you know 2005 six, there was a sort of debate whether as whether as to whether 
you know, interactive TV would be a huge thing where people did their shopping and banking and betting and bought their holidays on TV or whether, you know, laptops, whether PCs, laptops, and we didn't even think of the mobile phone back then would be the way people would interact with this thing called the internet. And Sky had a bit of a, a bet on the former and we fell in line with that. So we had a, initially a big focus on, you know, the services that you would get when you press, you're watching Sky Sports, you press the red button, you could place a bet on the football. Um, and it, you know, the sort of, um, it actually did quite well in the early days. Um, and almost that made it a, hard, a more of a challenge because we started to sort of focus the business around that. And we, we launched various sort of um, content, pieces of content. So you could press the red button and you could hear a betting related commentary on the game. Um, but that, that, so that, you know, as, as the 2000s went on, it was pretty clear that these services were, the interactive TV wasn't going to be big enough. You know, betting was probably the thing that worked more than anything else, but it was clear that um, the functionality and the um, usability and the sort of privacy that you get from having a, a laptop would would win. Um, so we made some mistakes focusing on that. But the, the, actually the benefit of that was that we, a lot of our competitors had only ever moved from telephone betting to um, to the internet and for very sort of technical reasons that I won't get into, actually having been, having us having a website and an interactive TV service in the early days meant that we were able to move on to mobile in, as time went on much quicker and easier and better because uh, we'd already done sort of more than one platform than, than our competitors. So actually it was, it didn't go right. It was a sort of strategic error. Um, but, you know, what we learned from that helped us move to mobile uh, much better than many of the other companies. The fourth episode of Leeds Business Podcast was really entertaining. We met James Brown, who launched Loaded Magazine back in the 90s. And he told us a little secret that actually the magazine nearly didn't get off the ground. I only found out about that years later. We had to go through this process of, as, as, as many businesses do, particularly in retail when they're selling things. Um, we went into small research houses. I, I can't remember if we did one in Leeds. We definitely went to Oldham. I think we did. Might have, I think we might have gone to Leeds. Leeds, Oldham. Did about four places. And what they do is, I don't know if anyone watching has ever been recruited for sort of market research. But basically, they would go. They were going to uh, news agents and looking for people buying magazines like the Enemy. Or I mean, no, they couldn't find anybody who was buying Arena or Esquire, but you know, a motorbike magazine or a music magazine, specialist magazines. And you get this weird cross-section of a guy who reads Kerrang and a guy who reads Motorcycle News and a guy who reads sort of a football magazine. And they just couldn't get their heads around the idea of, of a magazine that would have lots of, dip, you know, football and music was my two basic pillars. And then after that, clubbing and drinking and drugs and travel and humor and the idea of, uh, and it that but then again the, the people that they've pulled in weren't early adopters they weren't curious people who were looking for new things they were people who were quite set in their appreciations of their own niche hobbies or i mean not they, they were big hobbies but it was their one passion um and so alan changed the results luckily it was all still tight and he just got the tip eights out <laughs> You know, where, where you know, are you likely to buy this magazine if it'd come in at 44%, he'd put it up to 88%. <laughs> but, 
So, you know, because the people who are putting the money up for the magazine, who, who owned it, and I mean, IPC, they were very big. They were called the Ministry of Magazines. They were very uh, staid company. You know, they had titles like Women's Realm and Cajun Aviary Bird and, and, and things like that. You know, they weren't a particularly racy, hot, young, entrepreneurial company. Um, so they were very dependent on things like research to make decisions. But thank God Alan cheated. So, so the magazine that the magazine that created a whole genre may never have happened had he not done that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and also, by the way, not creating a genre in the UK. Lodi created a, a genre of mass market men's lifestyle magazines for the whole world. In episode five, we met Lisa and Saskia from the Biscuit. They were very clear that clarity comes from actions, not thoughts and told us all about the benefits of bootstrapping. A couple of posts you, you've posted recently, I think were, were fascinating and it'd be interesting for you to share them with our audience, is, is the first um, was a list of lessons from bootstrapping. Do you want to share that with our audience? If you can remember what you wrote. <laughs> yeah, testing me now. Uh, is that the one from yesterday? It might be, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the lessons are obvious because we still know them, even if it... Yeah, definitely. So I think... I think um, when we started this, we might have kept ourselves small for quite a long time because we didn't have a business background. We didn't have investors. We didn't have, you know, a rich dad to, to ask for help or advice. It was just us figuring it all out by ourselves. And I remember speaking to some people and they were chucking around acronyms and business speak. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. I need to look that up when I leave this meeting. Um, and I've learned that it honestly doesn't even matter. Like as long as you know the things you need to know, of course there's always more to know, but there's even more to know for the person who has studied business and who has run 15 businesses. So I feel it's all like a wall they're building to keep certain people out. And I wanna knock that down and go, everybody's welcome. And you might just need to figure a few things more out on the way, but you will. It's really not that complicated, the basics. And then obviously it gets complicated. Um, but this whole, I want to inspire people to, to start something. And I always say that clarity comes from action, not thought. So I think people just don't ever take that first step because of those things, because of those acronyms. And because of hearing things like revenue and six-figure business, and I think what I said yesterday is in that post that it doesn't matter how much money you turn out. It's all about cash flow in the end. And it's not about what um, fancy acronyms you use. It's about the value you add. Um, it doesn't matter how many hours you hustle and sh and kind of put a badge of honor to your busyness. It's about the, the time you make to rest and reassess if what you're doing is actually in line with your values, if it's if it's if you're prioritizing the right things, um, so there's so many so many other things. What else did I say? Well, I, not a hundred percent sure all of the things you said in there, but but I guess with bootstrapping comes is very much I think when people hear that word they hear money, um, so a lot of the people. <laughs> around us i always feel like oh yeah we we got a bank loan or we're, we're going out to our second round of of investing round and we're gonna ask for you know i don't know 150,000 because we want to do x y and z um and we we look at it occasionally we're like oh yeah well, i guess you know these people are doing that with that that amount of money 
Um, but we always come back to the conclusion that we want to keep this business really close to ourselves because we don't want to be speaking to a, a bunch of shareholders um, who have other ideas about how this business should be run. And I think we so much of our joy in running this business comes because we run it on our own terms. But it does mean it's not for everybody. It does mean, I mean, we haven't said this, but Lisa put in 500 pounds in 2016. I put in 500 pounds in 2016. And that is literally the only monetary amount that we ever put into this business for the first three years. I don't think we paid ourselves anything other than, oh yeah, maybe we can grab a coffee whilst we're on the market, you know, standing in the rain when it was pouring it down. Um, and, and that was a joy to us. I mean, um, and now we run a team of um, with nine, nine people and we make a quarter of a million turnover, which again says F all, <laughs> because it's not about how much you're turning over. It's about how much profit you're making, which is another thing that I've learned. You know, you can turn over three, four million uh, and make 1% profit. And, you know, fair enough that, that the more millions you make, the smaller the percentage of profit can be for it to be of, 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 of a meaningful uh, amount. But yeah, to really understand how well a business takes over, you you got to understand more than just how much somebody's turning over. While we're running through all these highlights, let me remind you about the Leeds Business Podcast, Fair Deal. The Fair Deal has two sides to it. My side to it is, as you can see and hear, I bring you lots of fascinating, interesting and inspiring guests totally for free. Your side of the deal is you have to do two things. Number one, recommend this podcast to one person you feel will get a benefit from it. And number two, leave us a review either on the Apple Podcast app at podchaser.com or give us a thumbs up and a five star from Spotify. And if you're watching, hi to everybody who's watching, give us a big thumbs up and a review on YouTube. That's it. That's the Leeds Business Podcast. Fair deal. Episode six saw us talking to Jane Slimming, CEO of the digital agency Zeal. Now, Jane gave us an absolutely fantastic how-to. How to run a tech project when you're not a techie. We do a seminar which teaches, it's, how, it's called How to Run a Tech Project When You're Not a Tech Person. So I just thought I'd go through some of the key points here that would be, I think, um, well, they're really important. So the first one is discovery. So you should be investing a significant time in discovery before you put anything in hard code or soft code, if that's the thing. But before you put pen to paper, um, you need to really make sure that the agency or the individual that you are using to build this totally, totally gets your vision, gets your vision now, and your vision of where you want to go. So in our discovery days, and a lot of good agencies do something similar, we're not, um, we're not unique in this but we will sit down with the client with the key stakeholders and we'll say right tell us everything you want it to do now and you could think of it doing in the next three years to five years and we will get all their requirements and it's non-technical so it'd be like i need to be able to buy a pencil or i need to be able to add a um I need to be able to pull information from zero or I need to do X, Y, and Z. So we'll put everything on the, on the board. It, it goes on. This is, it takes, depending on how complex the platform is, it takes a long time. 
we also have our technical architects in the room who's built lots of different platforms. So we'll get the stuff out of them. And then the second point, so discovery, making sure that everybody's on the same page is crucial. The second thing is MVP, so minimum viable product. And I love this when clients do this because they go, I go, right, everything's, you've got 20 things on the board that you want this platform to do. What does it need to do for launch? For launch, what does it need to do? And they'll go everything. <laughs> and I'll go, no, like literally no. And I will, I'm really like, you've got to be strong because I get it. Because now they've seen it on a board, they're excited. They're like, oh, I'm going to build this thing. And I go, no, you don't need it to do everything. It's called a minimum viable product. So the reason that minimum viable products are so important is twofold. One, it's a lot more, obviously, everything, every one of those features, there's a cost to it. So actually use your budget wisely and do only what you absolutely need to for first launch, for first iteration. And the second is get it to market quickly. You might have a platform where you want 100 things, but that's going to take 12 months to build. Well, somebody else might be out there before you or somebody else might be doing it. So it's all about speed and efficiency without um, losing the actual features that it needs to have. So minimum viable product. If you're a client, don't be precious. Genuinely think, what is the absolute minimum it needs to do here? Um, and then the other thing is due diligence on the agency or the person that you're working with and talk to their clients. I actually think one client did this towards and it was really sneaky, but I was like, yes, I like that. Um, I had like three clients in one day ring me up and go, well, just let you know, I've given you a good reference for this, for this client. And I was like, I've never, even, I'd never even heard of the company before. Literally never heard of the company. And I was like, what? Is somebody else pitched for this? And I don't know about it. So I sent a message around. Nobody had heard of them. I went on the website, didn't know anything about them. And I just thought, that's really weird. And I was about to send an email when my phone rang and it was the owner of the said, of said company. And he said, oh, I'm just looking for an agency. I was wondering if I could come in and see you. And I said, well, you can. I said, you've been speaking to my clients, haven't you? And he was like, oh, I didn't know they'd tell you. I was like, of course they would. But I thought, fair play, before he'd even come in to see us or given us a brief, He'd gone on our website, looked at the people that we've done work for and just rung them direct. And I think that's, a. I just think, I liked it. I just thought he is, he's a cheeky little shit, but in a good way, in a really good way, smart, thought it was good. Um, so yeah, do your due diligence. And, it, uh, and is he a client now? He is a client. He's been a client for six years. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Look at platforms that they built. I also think it's really important that if you're not technical and you're not big enough to have a CTO or a technical person, if you're talking to an agency or a group or whatever of building this, it's worth paying a, a third party who has no skin in the game, no, I'm going to get paid if this happens, to actually look at any scoping documentation, look at the code of what of things that they've been built as well. And just do your due diligence to make sure if you're not, like, I couldn't tell you what was good or bad code, but my team can. So doing that is really important as well. And we actually do that for some people. So we actually act as that, that consultancy and, but then somebody else builds it. And um, think about the, I don't know how far, I don't know how far along I am, but th think about the separation process. So it's like saying nobody gets married, thinking about the divorce, but think about the divorce. Um, is the code yours? What's the IP? Is this proprietal tech? Are you licensing it? Who owns it? If you're wanting to sell in five years, what's happening? Again, real, real horror stories there about 
dubious mechanisms. So, and again, obviously, when it comes down to the contracts, get some legal advice on that as well. Um, and last is kind of, it's never a launch and leave. Um, uh, even if it's, even a basic website will never be finished. So think about that ongoing support. Um, and trust, once you've done that, if you've gone through a discovery, a due diligence, you've spoken to clients, you've got somebody checked the code, at that point, trust the agency. Like, give them enough space to do what they do and don't be kind of over their shoulder all the time. I liken it to the old, you know, taking your car into a garage. I would not be over the mechanic's shoulder telling him how to, I don't know, change some oil or brakes, whatever. Like once you've done all that, you have to get to a point where you're like, these are my partners. I do trust them and, and go on your gut, gut instinct for that. But it's, it is difficult when you have a client when you feel like every single thing you're justifying, you're fighting for it. Um, I, I don't like that. I like the clients that go, I trust you. You trust me. You make a mistake, tell us. I make a mistake, I tell you. There's that. And that takes time. I get it. And I get it, it takes time. But um, I'd just say be open to doing that. Episode seven saw us meet Simon Gray, CEO of Boost Drinks. And Simon told us why being first to market is not necessarily the best thing to be. Very much so. I mean, we, we, are, a, we are a fast follower. You know, we're a challenger brand. That's what we do. You know, our job is not to be the innovator. Um, we have moments of innovation, you know, pure innovation, whether it be going down a different flavor route to what the market's doing and that kind of thing. Um, and I suppose to some degree, price point is one of our sort of areas of real sort of, you know, added value to the marketplace. But yeah, absolutely. Wherever there is a brand leader that's really blazing a trail in sports and energy drinks, we want to be the number two uh, behind them. Um, and I suppose that the bigger they become globally and the more they spend on marketing and educating um, consumers about you know, the benefits of the proposition, the easier it is for us to kind of like surf on the back as the, the great value challenger. In episode eight, we met Stuart Clark, one of the founders of the Leeds Digital Festival, but also the man that brought us the Leeds tech map. So here's Stuart telling us all about it. Well, it was one of those things where, and again, for, for, for years, that key thing for me, as, as I've mentioned about introducing people, making sure people know who's out there, and one conversation that kept coming back up, you know, I maybe had talked to a software firm and they'd know of, know of four or five others, but no more than that. Or some people would think they're the only fintech in, in, in town, you know, that sort of thing. So I thought, well, we should make a, a you know, we should make all this available. You know, how do we make sure we bring everything together? And a part of that, you know, start putting a, a spreadsheet together and it's really boring. Nobody wants to, uh, to sort of <laughs> scroll down an Excel. So I thought, you know, let's, let's put it in a, uh, easy accessible and, and, a and a good looking way. So came up with the idea of the, of the, of the, of the tech map, uh, but it just sat there on the side. It was one of those, you know, every six months, bring it forward. Maybe I'll do this. And it went, but in the first lockdown, I thought, you know, let's, let's, let's just crack on with it. And I'm going to say first lockdown, you know, we didn't stop, we, you know, we, we weren't furloughed or anything because one of the abuses of working with tech firms, you know, they were busier than ever that, that, that year. So we became busier than ever, but I thought we saw now and ever for, for, for the tech map. So we just cracked on with it. And, and in my naive mind, I thought, you know, this will take 12, 15 hours and we can do it for virtually no cost. So 200 hours and about five grand's worth of design costs later. And about, I think this is version about five, uh, because every time we thought we had it looking, we had to move one 
one sort of line and then you know, you've got all the cross cross lines so so yeah so we launched that back in uh i think march 2021 so it's, you know uh and it's just been great so you know, we've, we've had quite a few hundred printed there's printed and framed copies in you know sort of dozens if not sort of hundred plus sort of receptions and boardrooms around leeds which is great because it's got my company's details in the in the top corner and you know we, we have won some business out of it but right from the off we just made it free if anybody wants uh, a, a copy if anybody wants uh, to, to download it and print it themselves if anybody wants to use it for any reason it's out there as a resource for the uh, for the region and and what's been really nice over the last couple of years with with the tech map is that both lead city council and also the the local West Yorkshire Combined Authority with their inward investment teams, you know, trying to attract firms to, to, to move to Leeds, to open up in Leeds, you know, they've used the tech map, uh, and, you know, given loads of copies away to, and so I think, I think there's framed copies in China, Malaysia, India, Germany, Germany, US, you know, just, just everywhere because, you know, when companies are looking to move to the UK for the first time, obviously they'll probably look at London because, you know, everyone knows of London. Uh, and so with Leeds, it's a case of like, you've, there's a community here, there's talent pool, there's these great universities, there's companies that have already trained loads of good staff for you to, to move into. And look, here they are. So again, talking about this, this incredible dynamic forward thinking tech community that we have here that, that perhaps Leeds hasn't always got the reputation for, or rather didn't, but I, I think the last few years that's, that's really changed radically. And if anybody wants a copy of the tech map, where would they get them? Uh, well, if, if you go into paceline.digital, uh, uh, which is our, our website, you'll see there's a, a tab on there for Leeds Tech Map. Uh, you, you can download the PDF uh, straight away. If you want the printed copy, just give us a shout. We've still got a few left. I've just about been able to get in my bedroom in the last six months. Give it <laughs> when, we had, when we had them all delivered at first, you know, quite under, underestimated how many sort of, uh, how big a pallet it would be with sort of 400 printed uh, maps all in there in, in tubes. Yeah. It's big. <laughs> Episode nine saw us discussing one of the coolest products that comes out of Leeds, jukeboxes. CEO Chris Black told us all about how the problems of Brexit really affected his business. For us, it, initially, um, the biggest problem was because it never happened and it took 12 months. I think we were supposed to leave in the March. So we all rocked up after Christmas, coming in thinking, right, what the hell's going on? We've got 12 weeks to really not do anything because normally on our machines we've got at least a 10 to 14 week lead time so when we came back in the january we did the normal ring round all the distributors email them and say right here we go you've all had a good christmas here's to the new year and they all came back in europe and said well we can't buy anything off you because we don't know what how we'll get it into the country we don't know what it'll cost us because by the time we've sold something over here and you've delivered it whatever the 1st of March, 12th of March, whenever it was supposed to be, will have gone. And we might end up selling things cheaper than we bought it for. So you're gonna to have to bear with us for a few months. So we said, right, fine, that's okay. And then I think it moved out to the July or the August or the October, whenever it was. Tried to blank that year out of my mind, to be honest. And then it ended up being the general election and everything else. And it would just, we, we, what we did is we tried to hold on to all our team while we were going quiet, thinking, well, we're only 12 weeks away. We'll, all right, we'll take a hit. We'll come back. 
well, we took a hit and then we took another hit and then we took another hit. So it wasn't a nice time because they kept moving the goalposts. Obviously, then after, we then had the problems with the transport and then, but then everything, to be honest, after that went into the oblivion anyway because COVID hit within sort of like a couple of months and all we, all we went again was uh, down that line of what's going on with everybody else. So literally, you're just starting now to get through the Brexit thing. Um, and it is a pain. I don't care what anybody says. It's a pain. Um, it's cost a lot of businesses a lot of money. Um, we used to do exhibitions in Holland, and it's a nightmare to get machines in and out of there now. All the Dutch guys used to come to our exhibitions in the UK. We've not seen anybody exhibit from Europe in the UK uh, for our exhibitions for as long as I can remember now because they just can't be bothered with all the paperwork and the, the complexities. It's one of those things we have to get on with it and that's what we'll do. Once again, it's roll your sleeves up and just try and, but it is just another hassle. In episode 10, we met angel investor Helen Oldham and she told us what you should look for when you're looking for a non-exec director. So I would always recommend a skills audit of your board. Um, so that you are clear that you've got all the support you need to grow your business from every aspect. And, you know, typically you, you're definitely going to need people who are conversant in things like governance, you know, and finance, Then, but then also people who can help you commercially and with marketing and then supporting you and growing your people's skills and confidence as the business grow as well. So being really clear, you know, what skills already exist in there, people that you've surrounded yourself with, and then where the gaps are. I think then the next most important thing is a values alignment, um, being really clear that the people you're talking to in terms of potential non-execs have the same value set as you, um, and that there's a sort of cultural fit with the organisation is also super helpful. But I'd also really... Um, advocate that people look for people who will provide constructive challenge you know having those people on your board who ask the challenging questions difficult questions quite often will get you to breakthrough moments much faster than you would get there organically so i'm not necessarily saying you know get people on your board who you're going to get on with every second of the day probably you do need that little bit of friction if the business is going to grow um, and I think it's up to you then, along with the chair of, of the board, to make sure that you're getting the most out of those individuals every time you, you meet and that everybody understands what their contribution needs to be. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found it interesting, inspiring and of use. To make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes, please subscribe to the show. Go on, do it now. Do it now before you go off and do something else. Thank you. Much appreciated. Oh, and don't forget our fair deal. See you next week.